0: A Different Kind of Leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hello, this is Giselle Corby, a host of A Different Kind of Leader. I am so excited to reconnect with an old friend from when we were both at Emory, Dr. Jazz Alawalia. Dr. Alawalia is a physician and public health scientist at Brown University School of Public Health and Medicine. He's been in academic medicine since 1992 and has been a practicing physician, faculty member, department chair, associate dean, and center director in medical schools, as well as a school of public health dean. His primary research areas are health disparities and smoking cessation and nicotine addiction and African-American smokers. He has been continuously funded by NIH for over 25 years, having been the principal investigator or co-investigator of more than $100 million in grants and has published 350 manuscripts. Jazz has served on the U.S. Government's National Advisory Council on Minority Health and Health Disparities on the board of directors of five national scientific organizations and is currently appointed to the federal government's interagency committee on smoking and health that's chaired by the U.S. Surgeon General. Jazz, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk with you.
2: (laughs) Well, it's a delight to be here with you, Giselle, to watch the work that you're doing. And I believe that this leadership podcast is really something that is very beneficial to the border community. So I'm thrilled to learn about it, thrilled to be a part of it, and of course, thrilled to reconnect with you from our early days, which really influenced my career back in Atlanta.
1: Well, we're going to get there because I want to hear all about the journey to Atlanta and then from Atlanta. But first, I'm going to start with the question we ask all of our guests. What is a quote that embodies your leadership style or your approach to your career?
2: Well, I'm never a rule follower, so I'll break the rule and give you two (laughs) quotes. And These are names that people have heard of, of course. One is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away in 2020 and said, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And I choose that one because I think it's so important in social justice that you and I and many others are committed to, but it's really important to do it in a way that others join you, because if they don't. You're not getting anywhere. You really aren't. And in fact, you're widening chasms. The second is really an amazing leader, John Lewis, an African-American congressman who also passed away in 2020. I guess that was a definitely a tough year. And he said, Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get into some good trouble, necessary trouble. And I think that's also good words because it's important to not stay silent, whatever the case is. You really have to make noise. And sometimes you have to get in trouble so much so that we know that whether it's Nelson Mandela or others, they've got to so much trouble that they're willing to give their lives and spend 20 years in prison, which is not an easy thing to do. So I think those are my two quotes.
1: Amazing quotes. And not at all surprised that those would be the ones that you would offer up, knowing how much good trouble you've gotten into. So tell the listeners about your career. How did you get started? Tell us about your leadership journey. There's so many questions I have since the last time we spoke.
2: Well, I'll keep it brief and let you sort of follow up. But I would say there are no physicians in our family. And you know, my dad's a mathematician. He wanted people to get a PhD. But I and my older brother did an MD. I redeemed myself because I did research. So that sort of kept my dad happy. (laughs) In undergrad, I was very interested in medicine because I like, you know, it's sort of a little cliche. I liked people, uh, but I liked science. And so that's not a bad combination for a physician. So I started taking classes. I was a biochem major and philosophy minor, but sort of filled the blank in medicine, sociology of healthcare, politics of healthcare, philosophy of medicine. <laughs> I took all those classes not to sort of try to get into med school, as I barely did, but really to <laughs> explore medicine from different facets. So I sort of, I guess, early on knew. I wasn't going to be a practicing physician, which is critically important. We need them. And there's nothing that one job is better than the other. We need all these. But it wasn't for me. I want to sort of have, if you will, you know, again, cliche, more of a population impact. You know, I only got into two med schools, Tulane and Albany Medical College. And it's gray and cloudy in Albany. And New Orleans seemed like a fun town. We were (laughs) middle class. We couldn't afford to necessarily me fly down for the interviews. I did it regional. So when I stepped foot in New Orleans, it's like literally the first day of med school. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> but there was you know, a journey to Chapel Hill, your stomping grounds for my residency. And I always have this itchy thing where I always have to keep moving. They wanted me to stay for the Robert Wood Johnson program. I had this itch to move on. So I went to Boston. And there I proceeded to, and I think when you have this podcast, it's very important that people realize there's ups and downs in life. Leadership is not about ups. It's about downs and how you manage those downs. How you work with them and so on and so forth and i've had no shortage of downs at, in my life and it's very humbling and it's very important to be humbled and we'll talk about humility later on i hope but i failed my internal medicine boards uh, when i was a fellow and by a few points and i was distracted by other things shall we say and it was the last year that if you took the boards and passed it you were grandfathered for life so imagine that that was a pretty sucky thing that happened And I sort of had a failed fellowship. I had no manuscripts out of my two-year fellowship at Harvard. It was the Harvard. I was at Deaconess Hospital, which was, I used to joke, the stepchild hospital back then because Mass General, the Brigham, and Beth Israel and the VAs were sort of where the strong researchers were. Of course, Israel and Deaconess have since merged many years ago. And so I was moonlighting to make money and pay back $100,000 debt. I was going to do a third master's degree. I had an M.P.H. from Tulane. I was getting a free master's from Harvard, which was like another (laughs) master's. Just like I I said, a Harvard degree, you know, I always wanted to go to Harvard and then not knowing sort of, I was always interested vaguely in policy. So I applied to the Kennedy school and said to myself, if I can go part-time, I'll do it. So I couldn't do the prestigious MPP, but I could do the master's in public administration. I got the acceptance letter. I was thrilled. They said it was a two-year degree and you have to be full-time. And so even though I had debt, I just decided, nah, and I almost quit my fellowship because I was sort of not doing it. I don't know what I was doing. And I said, you know what, maybe I'll be a clinician educator, which is not a fair way to think. But, you know, it was like, you know, if I can't do research, then I'll do this or that. Then I applied for jobs. And I said, if anyone is stupid enough to hire me for part research, part clinical, I'll take it. So Harvard wanted to keep me there. But then, you know, Jazz is the itchy guy. So that's how I ended up uh, at Emory. Is that Yuha Coco, the chair of medicine, and Mike Lubin, the chief of general medicine, offered me a 50-50 job, which we often, back in those days, would call the kiss of death because you would sort of not be successful in research. And I bought down my time by taking on a leadership role of directing the Walk-In Clinic, which then became my lab, if you will. And the rest is sort of history, as you know.
1: Thanks so much for sharing those early times where things didn't go as you had planned and sort of your thinking, the itchiness, that sense that there's something more out there and you're looking for whatever that is. You call it itchiness. I'm interested to hear sort of how that's Played out because I know you have moved actually around a bit since we both left Emory. So say more about that and how that itchiness has matured.
2: Yeah. No, I think there's something to be said for folks like you and others who really stay at a place and really it becomes their professional home and their personal home, which is really something you lose when you move, right? Your friends, you go to church you belong to a country club or whatever people do in their spare time? <laughs> they go to the beach or the mountains. It becomes, they become so familiar. You've now been in chapel, I'm guessing 20, 25 years. Yeah. You, know, you know the place well. I mean, I know it because I was there for three years, but you really know it. It's home. And then you know all the people in sociology and dental school and cancer center. And you know, my personality, I tend to know people quickly, very faster than probably most people can in over 10 years, but still there's a sense of instability when you move. And I think there's a sense that sometimes the grass is greener elsewhere. And let me tell you, it ain't very green anywhere. You know, it's just what it is. You got to fertilize it. You got to seed it. You got to aerate it. You got to till it, right? Mm -hmm. And then it, you know, gets green. So I don't have regrets in life. I don't believe in regrets and looking back in time and saying, oh, I wish I could have. Because life is a journey. Now, you'll hear me use that theme a lot about journey. And my younger brother, who's in the corporate world, says, he calls it the arc of life. I love that one. And I've been using it a lot because the arc is you can't see the other end of the arc. Right? The, yep. As far as I know, the earth is not flat. That was disproven some years ago. Mm-hmm. And because it's curvature and so on and so forth, you get buildings block your way and it's cloudy. You can't see what's 10, 20, 30, 40 miles away. And, and the analogy is that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I won't use names, but a dear friend of mine, we were fellows together off by a year. I just found out a couple of days ago, general medicine guy, a leader, diagnosed a year ago with pancreatic cancer. I don't want to predict anything. I want him to recover. And I want him to be one of those rare people that lives forever, that in fact, lives longer than me. He's got two kids my kid's age. You know, we don't know. We don't look at that designer that just died of cardiac cancer or karma. I mean, gee, this guy was incredible. African-American yes. designer, 41 years old. Let so me talk about a rare cancer. So we don't know. But back to, you know, sort of the direct question about moving is if you want to move fast up the ladder, you do have to move. But I think what I've learned, if I can pass some wisdom on other people, and I used to, it's funny, I don't think I tried to take shortcuts in moving up the ladder. Some people do. And I don't think I did. But I moved fast, and I moved maybe too fast, I would argue, and by moving why not just stay steady at a place and just move at a pace like really it's the old you know hare versus tortoise you know who wins in the end is the tortoise and so i called it paced approach and and there are no shortcuts so i guess if i had to pass that wisdom on to my mentees and my kids and i do by the way is that there's no green grass anywhere else there're advantages in moving there're disadvantages and, and you got to weigh them out but again as i said no regrets ever in my life i've been blessed to have lived in so many cool places learned so much of course when you move by the way you learn a lot about how different places operate and you can share that wisdom with people locally right because it's the old story like you know i'm at brown and a lot of people have been there 30 40 years and sometimes i look and i go whoa he could bring some innovation here and some perspectives and stuff and so i guess sometimes a place can benefit from someone like me in the sense that i've seen things done different ways
1: I remember several years ago, we saw each other, I think it was at a meeting someplace, and you gave me that advice. If one of your career goals are senior leadership, then the fast way to get there is to move intentionally, not just sort of capriciously. And so thank you for sharing that. I just remember that conversation, and it stuck with me actually over the years as well. So just so much that you've just said, when was your earliest memory of being a leader, when did you realize, I actually have what it takes to lead?
2: Yeah. You know, the word leadership is very tricky, isn't it? It's such a loaded term. And I don't know if it's a, the right word, to self-serving to answer that question. But since I got some of these questions in ahead of time, where I knew you would ask them, I googled the word, I searched on the word leader on my resume, CV to see what popped up. And a couple of the it popped up 16 times. And some of them are like, <laughs> funny. But you know, the first one was, at Tulane, when I graduated in 1987, I was 63. I was 24 years old, yeah, when I graduated med school. And I got the Outstanding Student Leadership Award. God knows what that means. <laughs> I think we get these leadership titles in different ways. It's In some ways, it's an almost overused word, right? That it reminds you of kids nowadays. You get awards and medals for participating. No longer do you get it for first place, but you get it for anything. You know that. right? My kids were in. Soccer or baseball or whatever. Everybody gets a medal. Yeah, everyone gets <laughs> the new egalitarian approach, which I actually don't agree with. But you know, then I looked in Kansas in '98. I did this statewide program called Leadership Kansas. It's very interesting, where I joined non-medical people, people from the community. It was done through the business side of the state business. Thing out of think, Kansas and it brought people we traveled around the state and we visited a prison we visited a local community or most states have something like this it was a really cool experience so you, what you're going to see here is my, my theme is that you're learning to be a leader you're doing a little bit of leadership you're talking leadership you're networking with other people who think very differently than you so I'm let's say politically maybe liberal they're politically conservative which I don't like necessarily hanging out with people who think like me many leaders do that. They hire, I just want to I want to make sure this comes in the podcast. The best leader is one who hires people who are different than them, who are not yes people, and who challenge them, but do it respectfully. Yes. So in other words, let's say I'm a dean or a chair, my vice chair or vice dean, or I'm a center director or deputy director, should not openly blindside me in public. Right. Or that That's inappropriate. That's just unprofessional. But in private, or in a group meeting in private, you know, five people should challenge, should disagree. It makes you a better leader. And too often I see leaders not doing that and they're hiring people like them and they think that their job will become easier. What's funny is in the short, short term it is, in mm-hmm. the long term, they just created a nightmare for themselves yeah. because most of the faculty, most of the other people are not going to buy that. So then I did this You'll want to know about formal leadership programs, which I think is a very important thing to talk about. I believe in these things. I actually think leaders are not born. You know, they'll say leaders are born. They're not. I mean, someone's <laughs> born to go, wham, wham, You know, they cry, <laughs> they got hair on their head or they don't, you know, whatever. My kids have a lot of hair. They're aging babies. You know, they're <laughs> small, you know, six pounders. It's groomed. It's matured. It's nurtured. You do it right above, as we're talking, I have two three-foot shelves of nothing but leadership books. Now, I've not read most of them, but it makes me feel good to have them there (laughs) because I feel like it's osmosis. It's permeating down (laughs) through the vapors and penetrating my body and mind. Now, I I definitely recommend one very strongly, a particular book. But I did something that was really cool, and I do recommend it. And the university paid for it, I think, or maybe my endowed professorship did, is the Center for Creative Leadership. So it's a nonprofit out of Colorado Springs, but they have it in Europe, San Diego, Colorado Springs, and you get to stay at the Broadmoor, uh, which Mm -hmm. is very nice. And I did it, looks like July 15th to July 19th, 2002. And so I was a chair and professor at Kansas, and it was incredible. It was very humbling. So you do a 360 at home first, pretty extensively. And you know, these are back then it was probably $9,000, so it's probably like $15,000 now. But it's worth its weight in gold. And universities are often penny wise, pound foolish. Corporations are not. I love the for profit world, I think they run things well. In the nonprofit world, we think of pennies, and we wouldn't invest in our leaders to do this. But know, every chair, every dean, every vice dean should be doing these kinds of things. And it was humbling because You know, I thought I was good at this. I thought I had like amazing empathy and so on and so forth. That's humbling. One of the exercises I'll never forget was something about we're in outer space and something, something, and we had to get to the moon. And there were a whole bunch of us there. And of course, a lot of us MDs think we're like, we know everything. We know how to invest, (laughs) which we're bad at. I'm still taking my $3,000 a year loss on my tax return, you know, 20 years ago. And so I thought like, I know how to get to the moon better than anyone in this crowd. What you find is that when you solve problems in groups with people with different, we talk about diversity in this podcast, is about diversity, but also diversity in thought and ethnicity and religion and disability status and everything, you really can come up with amazing ideas. And in the end, I saw how the solution was better than my solution. It wasn't a right or wrong, but there sort of was. And I realized I was sort of in the wrong, and, and that was humbling. That was an incredible program. And you know, you leave home with a whole notebook that sits on your shelf somewhere here. But <laughs> it was really transformative, I would say. And then there's all these other awards I got. Prevention Laurel for National Leadership. You know, what does that mean? ASPO, Joe Cullen Award for Leader Exemplifying, so on and so forth. But the other thing I did in Minnesota is I had an executive coach. And I highly recommend that. And in fact, I would argue that when the dean is hired by a provost at any university, they require an executive coach and they don't. And they don't require their chairs either because I'm not gonna use names <laughs> because they're too, all too close to home, but I would say 40, 50%, 30%, who knows what, you know, make up the number of deans, med schools, schools of public health are not fully qualified to be in those positions because we hire on IQ, not EQ. And when we hire an IQ, we pay the price because there are lots of smart people who shouldn't be Deans, there are lots of smart people who could be Deans, but shouldn't be yet. And there's some who, of course, should be right away. Hence, I recommend the book, Jumping the Gun. The only book I recommend these days, published in 2016, available from Amazon, paperback, $18.79, is Primal Leadership. Yes. Seeing the Power of Emotional Intelligence by Goldman, Boyatzis and McKee. And I had the pleasure and honor of doing the workshop at aamc or the american association of clinical translational sciences maybe actually the ctsa group with annie mckee i was honored to do with her this is really her stuff but this book is unbelievable i've purchased over 200 copies that's not an exaggeration and i get no kickbacks i've given them to university presidents cancer center directors have become dean's chairs uh, almost my kids, not yet, but mentees, postdocs, students. And I'm just about to purchase. We put a purchase order in for 15 more copies for our Clover Center grant for all the trainees in it. It is a must for anyone yep. because it teaches you things you don't learn. You think you know, but you don't. And you don't read it like a novel. You read about, I say, a chapter a week, dose it, and it becomes the Bible. Yep, digest it. You're nodding your head, which means. You clearly have read this book and heard it.
1: Yeah, the whole idea of being a pace setter as an investigator and the kind of shifts that you need to make as a leader, the idea that you need a toolbox full of tools for the different scenarios. Yeah, right. It sort of blew my mind to think about. And you're absolutely right. You sort of need to take a chapter, think about it, come back to it, and then sort of build this coil of learning
2: in the book classic example is is probably there is a chapter not probably there's a whole deep chapter if not more on styles of leadership and you know there's i think eight general styles eight to ten autocratic collaborative dictatorial yep. you know, whatever and often when you go on interviews if you do go to interviews for high level positions you know standard jeans chairs, whatever one of the questions they will always ask either the search firm and or the committee is what's your style of leadership and what people will do is they'll come in and they'll say what they think is the right answer. And so even the autocrat will say collaborative.
1: Collaborative, yes. Consensus.
2: (laughs) And what's funny is that's not the right answer.
1: It depends on the situation.
2: Exactly. The correct answer is it depends. And then the second part of the answer is, of course, is that generally the collaborative style or consensus or democratic, you know, is the best one to go with. But in times of crisis, you go into more autocratic style leadership or whatever. So it it depends, absolutely. And the good leader actually can change based on the situation. And often the autocratics can't. And even the truly like people who can't or conflict avoiders and, you know, let's say collaborative, they can't make crisis decisions. So it's not like one's better than the other. Right. It's about changing. So I think this is really it. This you know I hate to be dramatic again. My wife says I'm very dramatic, and I am. Is that this book is again another sort of life changing, transformative kind of thing, uh, along with that program in Colorado?
1: Yeah, CCL also has a campus in North Carolina in Greensboro as well. I did a a week there, and just as you say, it was pretty amazing. So you've been through, and actually even developed your own leadership programs. So. What did you find, or did you find anything lacking in these programs that you feel leaders from diverse backgrounds need to know?
2: Well, you know, I think many of the programs like CCLE's back when I did it, which is now 20 years ago, probably didn't focus on diversity mm-hmm. and people of color because the issues were there, but they just weren't, shall we say, very visible or present. And I think all of a sudden people woke up and realized, oh my God. I joy, Sorry for my sarcasm and cynicism and jokes that all three realize that, oh my God, there is discrimination. Oh my God, I'm not woke or I am woke. And then there's a lot of guilt. I don't know if it's white guilt or other guilt, but there's a lot of guilt and everyone swings a pendulum. And I'm not a big fan of talk. I'm you know, a big fan of just action rather than talking about these things. But I would say that it is very tough, this space about diversity and leadership and how to sort of uniquely train in that space. I would say that, you know, listening is very important for people in leadership programs to listen to what the stakeholders, the constituents, the trainees have to say. Their stories are amazing. I was on the phone yesterday on my drive from New Jersey to Providence, and I was talking to a PhD candidate of Chinese background, born in China, is now wants to apply to our PhD program. It was talking to me about, it was very sort of, really want to work with me because of the work I did, disparities, all that, you know, the usual stuff, but also that I was a person of color, wore a turban, you know, minority religion, darker skin, all that stuff, and was committed to this, and they loved that. So I think people who are from diverse backgrounds want to be surrounded by people of their elk. And I think, you know, I was just thinking about even this Thanksgiving about one of my son's friends were over, and he's Indian. Actually, he was born in India, and he's from, actually, he's from North Carolina, uh, the <laughs> area, and uh, he goes to Yale, and he was so comfortable. He slept overnight. He flew back early from Thanksgiving. We picked him up from Newark Airport. It was just so comfortable. I could walk around, you know, my hair down, literally and figuratively, and we could just chat. This sounds terrible. I don't think this would happen in a traditional Western family. Like, he's our guest. So as my son's helping me bring in the hose from the outside, I had him vacuum the kitchen. That would not happen in a Western culture thing. Like your guest is helping out like vacuuming the kitchen floor because we're getting ready to leave. So my wife doesn't have to do it. In my house, it does. (laughs) You and I have the same color skin.
1: Exactly right. <laughs> it's like everybody pitches in. <laughs>
2: exactly. I mean, I, I don't mean to sort of stereotype people or groups, but mm-hmm. there are huge cultural differences, and each culture has pros and cons to it. This may not be a good thing. I don't know. But my point is, of that story, is not it's good or a bad thing? Because maybe it's a bad. Right. thing. Maybe it's rude to have your guest do that. But he's not a guest. He can stay at our house anytime he wants. He can open the fridge. He can not even you have to call. He can just right. stop by our house. It's our culture. But the point is, is that he was very comfortable. With us. Yes. And his other friends are also very comfortable with us. Of course, one is Latino from Guatemala. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you know, and so forth. but we also have some, he has white friends too that come over and have stayed at our house. And they're also very comfortable. I think I'm disarming, you know, my personality. So they're all comfortable, but there's something different. And that, uh, je ne sais pas, I don't speak French, so I have no idea what I just said, but, you know, just sort of like that thing that makes it different. When you're with someone, it, it feels comfortable and it feels safe. But, you know, you can't hide from from the majority population because they still are the board of directors. They still are university presidents. So you have to interact with them. You have to work with them. You can't just say, I don't want to be with majority people. Right. I'm not comfortable with them. That's not healthy, I think, or anything like that. So it's really about working from your strength, but working with everyone is very important.
1: That comfort and ease, it's very hard to sort of explain why, but yet we all know it. We all feel it when we're together. And it's so important. And while inclusivity is clearly an important goal across our universities, having those affinity groups, having those spaces where black and brown folks can come together and just as you say, let our hair down you know, sweep the floor of someone else's home because I feel like I belong here. I feel like I'm welcome here. I feel like I understand the culture. Like, you're a kid. You're going to help out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that kind of thing.
2: You know that famous book, and she's written a follow-up book 40 years later, and I heard her speak locally or in Providence. I apologize. I don't remember the author's name, but why do all the black kids sit together? In the
1: yeah, I have that book. Yep, <laughs> yeah,
2: And then she's written a follow-up. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So the original book is from the 60s or 70s. And then mm-hmm. she wrote a follow-up to literally, I think it's called the follow-up to why all the black <laughs> <laughs> Just keep it simple. I heard her speak at a local school here a couple of years ago. And why do all the Indian kids sit go? Why do all Latino kids get? Well, one reason is because you, the majority population, never invited them to sit.
1: There's that.
2: <laughs> so it's not just that they're more comfortable or they're in the ghetto. It's because you never invited them. So I went to a high school in suburban New York, which is out, obviously now more diverse. It's Rockland County across from Westchester, just mm-hmm. like 45 minutes outside of Manhattan. When I grew up, there was Italian, Catholic, white. There were four ethnic minorities in the school. Don Kim, Korean, who had a Parker Penn, which I thought was so cool. Myself, my elder brother, one African-American and one Latina. And I'm probably not exaggerating. Oh, my gosh. Class of 1200, But it's okay. I mean, and I was, you know, my brother was president of the school. I was secretary. We played Marcy <laughs> 10. So, you know, we we made it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And we were comfortable there. I mean, it was a comfortable town. It was Irish, Italian, Catholic, a lot of policemen from New York City, bedroom community. But we had to sit at the table with them. Because <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was like the four of you.
2: <laughs> we were included. But but once it starts becoming 10 20% ethnic minorities, you know, there's some tipping pointers up there, as opposed to where there are only four people, then this separation starts happening. And it's also happening because the majority the population is not including them. I lived in Minnesota for 10 years with people of view as sort of the liberal place, and they pride themselves, you know, Hubert Humphrey and all that. And Selvin Vickers, I'll invoke his name, Chair of Surgery at Minnesota now, for a number of years, Dean of the School of Medicine in Alabama and Senior Vice President of Health Sciences. Not, I mean, I used to joke the following, I guess I could say this, that Atlanta is to African-Americans as Minneapolis is to whites. You have to think about that for a little bit to understand what it means. And Sullivan and I got it. And it's not, it's pretty funny because it sounds damning of Minneapolis, but it is and it's not. But what happens is that people equate being liberal with being, I hate the word woke, but whatever, I find it a funny word, actually. Mm -hmm. I like using it, but being woke and getting it. And you ask people there who are white and liberal as can be, and you say, oh, okay, well, how many Latino friends do you have? How many Sikh friends do you have? Well, not many Sikhs, but how many Indian friends do you have? How many black friends came to your house in the last two years? Ah. And often zero, by the way, to see you know. And, you know, so I think this idea of diversity, that whole I and in the inclusion is just so critically important. Yeah, yeah. Anyone can recruit diversity. It's really what you do once they come there, you know? Yeah. Sorry if I'm going off topic.
1: I love the off topic. Off topic is my favorite topic, <laughs> particularly with you, Jess. Can you describe, I mean, you've been so successful in so many realms. What is a success that you're particularly proud of and why?
2: So I've had a lot of mishaps. I don't know. Failures is a harsh word. So we have to think of a euphemism for failures, but whatever. We've got to look up in the thesaurus for failures, but and I don't like that word, but, but they're real and I've had many of them, it's really what you do with those and you learn. But you didn't ask that question. You asked the flip side.
1: You can answer that one if you want.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll come back to that. But I think successes are tricky because at some level, just like there are a lot of those quote failures, there are a lot of successes too. And I think the one that just keeps me with great joy or sort of, you know, I never get two things. One is just to see people succeed right? To see junior people succeed just tickles me to death. I love it. And, you know, it was embodied in Kansas when Debbie Powell, the dean taught me this thing, is that when someone got a grant in my department of Preventive medicine and public health, that was 50000 or greater, it could be a $2,000 grant, I would buy them a dozen roses. I love flowers. And I would buy lavender or peach because those are my two favorite roses, not red roses, you know, whatever. I like peach and lavender. And I would get them. And I would bring them in. Back in the days, there were pagers back then. And my assistants would call, hey, Nikki, Dr. Oliwali wants to see you. Like make it sound like something stern or whatever, you know. <laughs> and then I would quickly gather the people on in the office, say anyone who's around, knock on the doors, hey, quickly run in my office. We'd shut the door. And then Nikki would knock on the door, not knowing what it was about. Sometimes by the time they figured out, but didn't know, knock on the door, open it, and we'd go, surprise. <laughs> and we'd all stand there like 15, 20 of us, hand the roses, and they had one minute no more than one minute, to say what their grant was about. And we clapped. That was us patting them on the back. Because if you look the top 10 reasons why people keep their jobs, salary is not in the top five, by the way. It's there, yeah. but it's not there. And it's those other things, feeling like you're appreciated. Not even that, feeling like you're being utilized for the skills that you bring to the table. So that's, I think, the success is all the junior people. One is a School of Population Health dean. One is a chair of family medicine. One's a chair of biostats. One is a chair of family medicine, another one. And one's about to become a chair if he gets offered the job. You know, and they're all full professors that I still collaborate with. But the real success with Kansas, which was when I got there, no federal funding in the entire department and the worst teaching evaluations in the medical school. The worst. 97. Two years later, we won a teaching award. The department did maybe a couple years later. I won a teaching award. I handed off the courses to someone else. And by the time we left, eight years later, you know, it's a small place back then. We were the fifth most funded department in the med school. And then Ed Ellerbeck, who took over after that for 10, 12, 15 years, he was my sort of colleague mentee, took it to the next level. And they got a CTSA grant at Kansas and they became the clinically designated cancer center, which we built the building blocks for. Yeah. Not, I say we, because it really was a we. And that was a real pride to see Kansas, which is a pretty impressive medical center. And it really took a lot of people to do that. So those are, I think, some of the things that were real joys for me.
1: Well, you brought the topic up. What were areas or what was an incident or area that didn't go the way you had hoped that was important for you? You've already been so amazingly transparent about early stumbles, but is there one that stands out for you?
2: Yeah, I would give one piece of advice. <laughs> no shortish advice because of mistakes and stuff. I would say one is that when you're in a leadership position, don't have the attitude or culture that when you come into a new job at a new institution or same institution, that you're there to fix anything. You're not there to fix anything. It's pretty arrogant to believe that. Even though, by the way, the person who hires you like university president or chancellor, tells you you're supposed to be there to fix anything. But don't listen to them then. Just because people tell you above, your leaders, your bosses, tell you something, doesn't mean that they're God or they know it all. In fact, they have agendas. And there's nothing wrong with agendas, but you have to take all those varying agendas and put it into your bullet, pulse it, and come out with a nice smoothie. <laughs> and so you got to sort through it. Learn that you're not there to fix anything. Point two, I think, learning from mistakes is that don't share the difficult decisions and share the bad news and share the giving of news to your various people amongst your lieutenants. In other words, not every email, not every good news and bad news should come from you. Share it. Let your vice dean, your vice chair, your lieutenant, your deputy director do some of those things about we're going to have to have tough times in the coming year because of COVID. Or great news, we're all getting a 5% salary increase. Let them have the joys too, which we always talk about. But let them share some of that too. Let them fix things rather than you. Because sometimes you actually are a little bit removed away from the issues and you may not even be getting it right and you screw it up. So that's another piece of advice. I think a concrete sort of example, which I can share is in Minnesota, when I got there in 2005, I was asked to head up this Office of Clinical Research which, you know, was built with a recurring base budget of $1.7 million every year. That's pretty significant, recurring permanent budget at a minimum to get going to build clinical research at the Health Sciences Center, which is six health sciences schools. Now, back then, Minnesota was very big. Just this past year, they surpassed $1 billion in R&D as a university. So, you know, in the neighborhood of Chapel Hill, Hopkins, UCSF, that kind of thing. So, it's a big enterprise. And then you know, four weeks later, Zuhuni announced the CTSA grants. And I was asked by the senior VP and then Dean, Debbie Powell, to say there was no choice. It was a 30-minute meeting. You're the director of the office. You're leading the CTSA. Okay. I had no chips. I had no relationships. I barely knew where the hallway bathroom was. I didn't have an administrative assistant. I was in a temporary office in the senior VP suite. And I was still trying to get my kids into school. Right, and this—I was to lead this $99 million grant, which I did, and it was fraught with issues. I'm not going to use names here, but it's fraught with personalities and issues that can be challenging. You know, in some cases, someone who applied for the job I did and thought that they should get it, and they clearly could have done. It. And in fact, I even asked the dean, "Why aren't you giving this person the job?" And the answer was, "Jazz, because you're a consensus builder. Mm. As a leader, you are a consensus builder." I would say that is true. I'm not the smartest guy. I'm really not. And don't disagree with me. I'm not very smart. I think I'm a good team builder. I know I have good ideas. And I know how to sort of lead people into getting excited about what they do. You know, we all have our strengths. So I had those challenges. And they were hard. If I look back, could I have done it differently? Yeah. Like maybe not take the job, possibly, you know, or take it. and I don't know, actually, about that part fully. I handled it pretty well. But I got trapped. You know, don't get into traps these books are all useful. I'm looking at my bookshelf again for you. And there's a book, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this podcast, but it's in the title. So I'm not cursing (laughs) called The No Asshole Rule by Robert Sutton. And it's a leadership book. One book that I bought 20 copies of and I shared back then was Our Iceberg is Melting by the famous John Cotter. And that book concept is about change management. Sorry, I'm going on a ramble here. But Talk a lot about change in leadership. who mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. to come in and deal with change and create change is not an easy thing. In fact, I have another book here looking at it called Making a Leadership Change. So the world, the word change is very important because the question is how fast do you do change? You got to move fast, but not too fast. Yeah. You gotta be inclusive, but you gotta be decisive. Yep. And this is where executive coaching and primal leadership and those things come in, because those are not intuitive. They're really not. And your boss may actually push you to do things, and this happened a little bit in one of the situations, faster than you should, and it backfires on you, and then you are disposable, and they're still around. It's okay. So important. Yeah, these are things. And one thing that you and I should try to learn more about, because I keep saying I will, I once read about this concept about diversity and leadership if you have more, please tell it to them on this podcast, I'll interview you. But this concept that ethnic minorities and people from different backgrounds are set up to either intentionally or unintentionally to take jobs that are called cliff jobs, C-L-I-F, oh. which is very, I read an article once about it, but we need to learn more. It's a jobs that are high risk that you're set up to either succeed, not set up to fail, but it's high risk and very likelihood to fall off a cliff. And that ethnic minorities often take these jobs. Let's be a student of that and learn a little bit more about that. Let's talk (laughs) about this idea of the cliff, which is very interesting.
1: That is fascinating. I definitely am going to look into
2: that. And there is something there, by
1: the way. I, I just am thinking over my career your career, others, yeah, the cliff job. I'm going to turn us to the questions that we ask all of our guests as we close. Jazz, this has already been such an incredibly rich conversation. There's so many things that I want to follow up on, but I also... want to be respectful of your time. So what do you do for self-care? How do you maintain the pace? You said that you drive from New Jersey to Providence. How often and how long does that take? And how do you sustain that?
2: (laughs) What happened was when we moved from Minnesota to be closer to my 80, back then 84, 83-year-old parents who are now 89, 88, I'd been away from the Northeast for 30 years. So I took a job that it was not the right one to be dean at Rutgers. And I left that job and left Rutgers and took a year off. So when I was trying to figure out what to do, I was on a soul search. So I you know, met with the CEO of the Ford Foundation. He's great. And I met with the commissioner of New York City Health. I met with a senior VP advisor, trying to kind of think what different, because I do like the, the for-profit sector a lot, actually. And I ended up in academics, and there were different opportunities. I obviously shouldn't name what they were but decided that Brown was the place to be because I didn't have to fly somewhere. We didn't want to move the kids again. They were in high school. So I took the head as all good parents should. I got an apartment here. And fast forward, the kids are in college. My wife likes her job. It's close to my parents. And I like my job at Brown. So we got to figure out what we want to do. And the more I found this out, I found out that a lot of couples who are dual career live apart. in sometimes West Coast, East Coast, wow. the Dean of NYU School of Public Health, Dean of Georgetown Med School or a couple. They live apart and so on and so forth. So I embrace it. And so I fly sometimes, I rarely, I drive, I take Amtrak, sometimes I triangulate my trips, like I'll fly to London and fly back into JFK. And so my wife and I have to figure out what we want to do with this whole thing, but I'm young enough to do it. And I do a lot of phone calls with people who want to talk. I have so many students locally here, I don't know, I feel like my phone, my name is on like the bathroom wall. I'm sure yours is too, saying... Jazz Aluwali, a good mentor, diversity, talk to him. and it's yes. like, this. like, especially something's happened the last couple of months. So I do the calls, and I knock off an hour, an hour, an hour, and I drive carefully. It's hands-free. And so I used to not like it, but it's not bothered me. For self-care, here's what I do. It's really important to take care of oneself. My dad, with his dadisms, you know, I don't know if you had a dad who had dadisms. But one of dadisms was, never pursue money, it will come. I may have told you that mm. back in, the day in Atlanta, but that's true. And money did come in a initiative. Second dadism, health is wealth. <laughs> yes. That's rather simplistic, but. And spot on. Yeah. You know, as you get older, I think as we face our mortality and our parents and so on and so forth, you just realize, crap, man, it is true. You can't go to a meeting if your knee is hurting or you need surgery or anything. You can't do your work. I love flying. I don't know if you I love travels. This is in London a couple weeks ago. You know, I've got South Korea on deck for 2022, you know, and other trips to go to Jamaica every year during Christmas We're going in three weeks. You can't do that if you're not healthy. So selfishly, I want to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And yet you can't travel back and forth to New Jersey. You can't stay awake at night reading Grant going to the gym unless you're healthy. So I go to the gym now more than I ever have. In probably my life, other than college. So I go to the gym five days a week and I watch mm-hmm. Netflix and I use it. Second, I keep telling you, and you can check back in a year, I need to resume yoga. I was doing it for a while. Yoga is single handedly the best thing that any of us can do, whether we're tennis players, weightlifters, pole jumpers, or vaulters or whatever, because and I don't do it for spiritual reasons or you know, any of that stuff. I just do it to stretch isometric okay. training. It's incredible.
1: It is, I completely agree with you. The agility, the flexibility, it's what you need if you're lucky enough to move through the decades.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then you combine it with some aerobic on the treadmill or exercise bike. Next thing I do for self-care is I love traveling with my family to different places. And we've been fortunate, privileged, lucky to go to places like Cambodia, Turkey, or the balloon rides in Turkey, Costa Rica, Jamaica, Cancun, Bermuda, the list is huge. And it's a real privilege. And I remember that every day. The next self-care for those that are not religious or are religious or atheist or agnostic. I don't care what we are. We all have to remember one thing. Those things that are in the Bible and the scriptures, they're very real. Those sins of life and many leaders, because this is a leadership podcast suffer from them is greed, lust, arrogance, and things like that. Those are things Mm -hmm. when you become a leader because it's powerful. And I witness it locally here at Brown and I've seen it, maybe I've even seen it myself, which is not good, is that you have to consciously resist those sins. And then other ways to self-care, I think, is, you know, if you do believe in God, which I do, you can pray, or you can just pray, just say, I'm lucky to be alive. I remember there's something bigger than me. It's something out there, and I'm humbled by that. It's a privilege to be here on this earth. We talked earlier about friends who are dying or Mm -hmm. or are no longer with us. So I think humility is very important. So I think self-care is critical. I play hard and I work hard and I love my work. And as you know, I'm not in a leadership position now. I do miss it, but I do miss leadership. I miss some aspects, but I realize probably, if anyone's looking out there, <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a Giselle Corby. I want to be director of a center for health equity. Like I did in Minnesota I want that job in a big way, a big startup package, a big center that is going to make a big effing difference on this effing issue. Yes. I want to be like you, Giselle, and I want to train people. I want to do policy. I want to influence state legislators. I want to train next generations. I want to do capacity building. I want to answer fourth level generation questions and health disparities. And I, you know, my whole career is intervention work. I don't fear yes. I want to find ways to make things better. And diabetes and high blood pressure the big killers and i want to see young people thrive and succeed especially lower SES people of all races and ethnicities and ability status and so on and so forth so <laughs> that's my advertisement on your podcast
1: awesome well i don't know about you trying to be me i'm trying to be you jess so <laughs> it's like we'll see how this mutual admiration society works So you've talked about a bunch of leadership books and several that you recommend. Are there any that you want to lift up now that we haven't talked about?
2: Primal leadership.
1: Yeah, Primal Leadership. It's a go-to. What are you reading or listening to now? Music, podcasts, other than this podcast?
2: (laughs) I try to read. I have the best book collection, 95% of which I haven't read, or 97%. (laughs) And I really, I wish I could show you a video camera. There's two stacks of books on the desk. Two stacks on the side table, nine shelves over there. at home in Jersey. We've got bookshelves everywhere because my wife loves books. So be surrounded by books. It's good. I like reading a couple of things that I'm <laughs> reading. But I just bought a book today, by the way. It's actually the story of Matthew McConaughey, the mm-hmm. actor. He apparently wrote a book called Green Lights.
1: Yeah, last year.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, philosophical kind of thing. A little bit yeah. for men, but about his journey and things that we should be Hearing about. stuff, I'm intrigued by that. So I thought that might be easy reading. So I just got it today, literally right before this call. (laughs) There's another book by, he's a, oh, I won't get his name right. So I apologize. But it's about this concept of when you hit 50 and uh, you come over the mountain and it's in the title, but I apologize. There are two particular books. It's a concept that you're on the rise like and then you hit 50 and you're at the top of the mountain, whatever that means. And you're looking and you want to see where do you want to go next? The titles don't matter anymore. What do you want to do that's different? How do you want yeah. to give to society, to your family, to people? And it's very interesting. But I'm going to send you the the book.
1: I actually think Sam Saha might have mentioned that same book when he was on, because I remember him talking about sort of this threshold of 50, but we'll, we'll make sure to put a link to it. What do you think
2: separates good leaders from great leaders? Emotional intelligence, empathy, and mm. kindness, leading yeah. with strength firmness decisiveness but with kindness we don't have enough kindness in this world yeah uh, it's just unbelievable and it costs nothing to be kind and in high school i had this very weird funny teacher who would say to me and this is in that rockland county high school he would say wali, why you smile so much why you smile and he was trying to be funny or something again people tell me i have this sort of smiling eyes COVID without you know smiles they call them now but <laughs> sort of smiles too and and I think it's really infectious kindness and smiles is infectious I need to do a better job we all need to do a better job and I think leadership through that is humbling and it's good
1: what advice would you give to your younger self
2: be kinder be more empathic have more <laughs> emotional <laughs> intelligence be humble and I guess what advice I give to myself is what advice to give to my kids and this is what I say in, we did during Thanksgiving. We went around the room, did our thing every year. It's very emotional, what you're thankful for. Half the people were crying. There were 20 people. The room was emotionally draining at the end of the hour. But I would say we are very privileged in my family. We are very privileged. And I'm getting emotional as you can see. Yeah,
1: take your time.
2: That we, we have so much. I can wake up in the morning. I can go out and pay for breakfast. My car breaks down get it repaired we had a leaking explosive faucet we had to cancel a party cancel the caterer this thanksgiving because that we had flooded we wiped it down we called the plumber 500 no problem nothing it's ever a problem mm-hmm. got to eat sushi don't think about it real leaders really inspire people to care about people that are less fortunate and we are filled in this world and in this country that are profoundly less fortunate than us white people people of color, disabled people, homeless people. We are not living in God's eyes or anyone's eyes, if we're not religious, of being kind humans until we really are doing the better job.
1: Thank you so much, Jazz. This has been such an incredible conversation. And thank you so much for really the passion, the commitment, the authenticity that not only did you bring to this conversation today, but what I know of you from 20 plus years ago and that same qualities that you brought to your leadership. I thank you so much for being the kind of example that we all need to really think about and embody. The kindness, the deep feeling, the empathy.
2: No, so I would say, take my good attributes, but drop my bad <laughs> <laughs> If
1: only I could. If only I could do the same.
2: <laughs> I'll keep working on my weaker qualities because it's a journey.
0: Thank you so much, Jazz. Thanks to our listeners for joining us and special thanks to Dr. Jazz Alawalia. This episode was hosted by Giselle Corby and produced by Sable Watson and Rachel Quinto. Our production assistant is Shelby McLam and contains music from Mixout and Chill Out Lounge and sound engineered by Sam of Kingdom Media. Visit our website at differentkindofleader.com to find resources for your leadership toolkit and hear more from other leaders. If you like what you've heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find us. Like and comment on Facebook and Instagram at differentkindofleader, all one word, as well as on Twitter at DKLeadership. As always, we want to hear from you, our listeners, so please contact us at differentkindofleader at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is A Different Kind of Leader.